Let's pray, and then uh, we're going to dig into, we're going to go down to verse 12 is where we're going to start today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for uh, your goodness to us. I ask that you would bless our time this morning in Sunday school as we look at James and uh, the teaching that is there. Lord, I pray that you'd guide and direct our thoughts as we examine these things. And Lord, if there's aspects of your word that need to be applied into our daily lives, Lord, I pray that you'd begin to reveal those things to us as well. I pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I'm going down to verse 12. 12 to 15 is what I'm going to look at today. Uh, James chapter 1, 12 to 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Okay? So, uh... Look at your questions, and I'm going to read it again. So the first one, we learn, what do we learn about God? The second is, what do we learn about people? And then the third is, what do we learn about relating to God? Start having those questions in your mind. What do we learn about God, his character, his conduct, his concerns? Okay, we're going to answer those questions first. What do we learn about God, his character, his conduct, his concerns, what, who he is, what he's like, what's he doing? Um. By the way, I thought about splitting up verse 12 from 13 through 15, but I think that 12 is actually a bridge between the first part of James and the next part of James, and uh, it's connecting those things that we talked about in the first half with this next part. So uh, uh, one particular, uh, I think it was Douglas Moo, one of the commentators said, Verse 12 is then, okay, the person who's enduring the test is standing firm in that encouragement to keep at it. But verse 13 is the one that is potentially getting ready to stumble, is how he described it. And so we'll talk about those things in a little bit. But, um, but I decided to go ahead and keep them together. I think there's an interesting conversation we can have as we, we blend these two ideas here and try to figure out what James is talking about. So... First of all, looking for God's character, uh, conduct, and concerns. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, the desire when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I'm going to give some additional insight, but just first glances, his first reaction thoughts here. Uh, What do you see about God's character? What what can we learn about God from this passage? Can't do evil. Good, right? Cannot, absolutely. Yes. Oh, yeah. He's he he's made a promise, and he's going to fulfill that promise. Good. 
Anybody else? Let me see about God. Both excellent. His character. His conduct. He doesn't tempt us. Hmm. Yeah, he does not tempt. Yeah. Hmm, okay, good, yeah, right? You find that progression at the end. Sin, when it, when it conceives, right, or when it's fully grown, brings forth death. There's that, that law of sin and death. Paul talks about it that way, that law of sin and death. Temptation is the act of trying to get somebody to fail. Mm. The verse where it says, I have plans to prosper you. Mm. I think God uses temptation to build character, but not in a way. Mm, yes, um, that is one of the things we've been talking about. The uh, this this word I may have mentioned a few times already that the word that is translated test, trial in James, very similar word that is translated tempt. Um, I did find uh, some additional information here. I want to share with you. I think this is the perfect time to just throw this in here. Um, Ben Witherington, the third, says um, <clears throat> there is much debate as to whether we should take, and he uses that Greek word to mean tested, as its cognate does in James 1.12, or tempted. So he's referring back, there's a, the, the root is the same, and he, I'm, I'm trying to avoid three paragraphs and trying to condense it down, what he's saying. But he said there's a lot of debate as to whether or not those things should be taken the same. I've, I've given some thoughts what I was in my initial study looking at it, but Ben Witherington has some thoughts on this as well. He says, hey, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not we should take this to mean tested or this way. Um, uh, He says, uh, there's a catchword linkage between the two, which is, I was like, oh, good. I I wasn't the only one that picked up on this, right? There's this, this connection between these two ideas. But he says this. He says, basically, a temptation is viewed as something internal, an inner enticement, while a trial is something external to the person. I thought, okay, this is helpful. Which goes along, not much different to what I was thinking, but there's, he, he's clarifying a little bit, and I was like, okay, good, this is a good clarification. This is the inner. He said, the verse then reads, when you are tempted, do not say I was tempted by God, for God is untemptable. In other words, not subject to evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Okay, so the idea here, I think, is that these things that are happening from the outside, if, if we see them as an enticement to do wrong, that did not come from God, right? This test, this trial, this challenge, whatever form it has taken, this outside circumstance, right? God has a great purpose in it, but it is not, and I think this is why I agree 100% with what you're saying, it's not for our demise or our destruction. Does that make sense? This isn't a whole lot different than what I've been theorizing or thinking. I, I personally, I'm like, I, I, I love this concept because I think it, it just helps me so much think about and balance out how does God's sovereignty play into what we're going through. Is God absolutely, 100% sovereignly in control of all things? Is God ever absent in whatever is happening? Absolutely not. His purposes, though, are always good. If at any point we think, 
oh, man, he's setting me up for a fail, failure. No. Mm-mm. Right? Um, there's some interesting quotes that uh, uh, all of these different commentators linked back to that are not from Scripture, but from other sources where it talks about the same, like different, just different uh, intertestament writers were talking about a similar idea that you can't say, well, in, in their attempt to try to figure out God's sovereignty, you can't say, well, this is what, like if I fall, I can't go, well, that's what God had planned. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? In a sense, you could say, does everything happen according to God's plan? Yes, but, but do, you see the, do you see the challenge in there? Is this making any sense or am I confusing you more? I think simply put, we have to say this. Every single thing that happens, there's the opportunity, there's the opportunity to do right in that circumstance. If there's an enticement to do wrong, that doesn't come from God. That's the clear part. Okay. Thoughts on that? Anything else that has to do with God's character? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I, I wrestle with the word allow. I'm going to be honest with you. I wrestle with the word allow. I, I absolutely think he does allow things. But I think that at the same time that I can say he allows things, I can also say, like Job, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so on the one hand, from one perspective, God did allow it. But at the same time, Job sees past the hand of the, these people, and he sees past the hand of Satan and goes, he doesn't have a problem saying God's hand was in this. Not just, not just like... Oh, I guess so. Right? But divine purpose, divine ordaining of those things. And so I, I have a problem with the word allow. I don't have, I don't have like a, a drastic problem with it, like where I'm like going to have a fit over it. But uh, I, I think that I lean more into God is ordained, not just allowed. See, I have a problem with ordained. You have a problem with ordained? Allow. Really? Yeah. Why? Yeah, well, here. <laughs> Did that make sense when I went like... Mm. Yeah. Or, I mean, I use both words sure. know, in reference to what, when things happen, but... Well, let, let, let me share with you why, as, as a Christian, I'd like to lean more into the ordaining of this, not just um, allowed. Um, I want to go to Acts, and if I can find it... Yeah, 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 Acts 4, I was going to start with Acts 2, but then Acts 4 is where I was going to go next. You start to get a hint of this in a sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, in case you're wondering, it says, it says you, crucify, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But yet, at the same time, he said that this was done according to the definite plan and foreknowledge. So in case you go, well, just foreknowledge. It didn't just say foreknowledge. He threw in their plan. But in case you're like, well, I don't know. That's still kind of loose. Get over to uh, chapter 4, and I think this is what you were thinking. Um, it, it says, uh, and there's a couple different ones I wanted to, I, I'd like to point out in here. Um, 
I, I want to go to verse 27, but there was another one before that. Uh, I won't worry about that one. Uh, verse 27. Yeah, actually, go back to verse 25, 26. Um, he's quoting David. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So you, you get the clear like there's plotting and planning on the, bar, on the part of the people of this world. But then listen so clearly to verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now, all those people, did they sin? Let's pick one, Pilate. Did Pilate sin? Was Pilate tempted to convict Jesus unjustly and then did it? Yes. Was that sin? Yes. In case you're wondering, yeah, it is sin to give a wrong conviction. And Pilate clearly knows that Jesus was not guilty of anything and went ahead and convicted. That's sin. That's wrong. But listen to what um, it says here. To do whatever, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And I love the fact that it doesn't say to do whatever your plan had predestined to take place. Did you hear the other word? What was the other word in there? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Um, and they were risen up against. Was that the one that you were going to point out, Paul? There's another one in there where it... Okay. Um, yeah. So, um, this may be taking a bit of a leap a little bit, but would it be fair to say that maybe some of the trials that we go through, we, we might be able to say, yes, this is ordained of God, as in we are set apart for the purpose of going through this trial, this is his plan all along. But would it be fair to say that there are other trials that maybe um, are self-induced? I think the real follow-up question would be, is it possible for anything to be self-induced that in the end God doesn't go back and say that was my plan? I, I'm going to be honest with you. I will always land on that side of it. And I don't have a problem with it. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't... I mean, no, he, didn't, he does not tempt for evil. That's what it says here. He's not the author of, of sin. But at the same time, has all... I mean, the Bible says that he does everything according to his own pleasure. <laughs> you know, I, I just can't get, there's too many passages that say those things that I just go, I can't, I can't get away from that. If, if, I, if I wrestle with that and I go, well, then God is unjust, well, I know that's a wrong conclusion. If, if I wrestle when I go, well, he made that, that rapist rape this person. Well, that's wrong because James says that's, that's not what happened. The enticement does not come from God. But I know that the end version of this world and all of history will fall completely and entirely according to his plan. Even the worst of the worst things will 
fit to the good pleasure of his will. Um, I think the scarier version of life is a version where God is not in control of everything <laughs> and working everything out. Yeah. I think these are things that I don't think you, are, they're not things that you should ignore. They're in scripture. Mm-hmm. You, you wrestle with them. You try not to fill in the blanks of mm. empty spaces that God intended to leave us with that question mark, uh, that heavenly question mark that we'll get one day. But I wonder sometimes if you're in the middle of a trial, does it really best serve your faith to spend a lot of time thinking about the whys, the what God is doing, the this, the that? Because I, th- I feel like he, t- he tells us, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Aren't we best, aren't we in a better position to build our faith in a trial, not by trying to figure out what he's doing or why he's doing it or, mm-hmm. you know, where all, but who he is. Yes. To, so to fix your eyes not on the storm, like Peter did and saying, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> what's going on? Why is there a storm? Why is Jesus on the water? What you know? Why am I not standing? You know, but to fixate on the person of Jesus Christ and who He is. Like I feel like that is what's going to grow your faith, and it's only probably going to stump you ultimately to try to perplex yourself. Whether it whether your answer ends up with this big bow that God works everything out for good. And my kid's going to get to become a believer through this, or this is going to, and I'm going to have a ministry or whatever. But instead, fixate on the God of the trial. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So I think these are good. I think these are good questions you wrestle with. But I also think you can get bogged down, and there are heavenly question marks that we will not know. How does this work with this? Well. We're perpetually filling in the blanks, and it usually means we end up saying something very bad about God on yeah. this side if we land over here. So, so this is where, I, in response to that, I would say, this is why I even, I, me personally, why I even take the time to even mention any of this, because I, I look at the, um, the way many people handle things as doing that very thing, trying to, trying to fill in, filling in the blanks of what God is doing where I think that what we ought to do is go, God's in control. I know what he's not doing. He's not brought this into my life so that I would sin, and so I need to do the right thing in this, or, this situation because he is good. I notice like when people call, or when I can make it personal to me, when people call me, mm-hmm. they're in a trial, usually a sudden one, that's knocked their feet out from underneath them, and they want to spend a lot of time talking with me about why do you think God's doing this, and what does this mean, and yeah. what did I do to make, the, you know, and all of this. And if I can get them to stop for a minute and I say, okay, we're going we're gonna to come up with five things about God right now that we know are true, and we're going to turn in our Bibles to those five things, I'm telling you, a calm faith comes over them almost every time. But if I muddle around in mm-hmm. question marks, I yeah, this, leave them. I think this down. is a good Sunday school conversation, but if somebody came to me and their grandma just died, I'm not going to be talking about this necessarily. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who is he? Our hearts go, well, he says he's good. Yeah. This don't feel real good. No. Mm-hmm. He says he loves. I don't feel like he's loving me right now. Yeah. Right? And it's, it, it's, it's hard. We have to do it. But that's why I think, well, how do we see who he is? We look and see in the word what has he done 
through history to be able to see what does it mean that he's just good. What does love look like? I, so it's it's not as simple. The right answer is we have to look at his character. Well, how do we look for his character? We don't just say, well, he's good, he loves. How do we see that he loves in the word? How do we see mm. that he's good in the word? Because I will frame what I think God's goodness means based on what I want him to be. I will make a God of my own image if I simply say, tick off, well, these are the characteristics. I and mean, then I, when they do that, I say, okay, well, how do we know that? Where have we seen God's character displayed in Scripture? Because I will twist those meanings of love and good and righteous mm -hmm. and all of that otherwise. That's good. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Is there a hand over there? No, but um, Charity, uh, what was the, the verse that um, you always talk about that is like where you focus on God's promises? And like if something's going on in your mind or in your life and you say, you know, is, is this from God? It, you know, like, is it good? Is it... Oh. Yeah, Philippians 4. True, honest, just. Yeah. Which is, means real. Is it really happening? True, honest, just, pure, loving, yeah. good report. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. But I like that. I, ha I don't know that I, I... I think I eventually do that, but I like that. I'm sure you do. But, but no, I just, but I like it because I think I could miss that step. And that's so good. Because you're right, mm -hmm. we would twist it even the character quality trait being presented. Thank you, Paul. I'm mad I said the other day we have nothing original with us. I want to take a step back from this topic for just one moment because there's one that we, we skip over sometimes and it's in verse, I think it's verse 12. Douglas Moo writes on this. Um, uh, some react against the notion of a reward for faithful Christian living. And indeed, service of God that is motivated by a calculated desire for reward is the very antithesis of Christian spirituality. In other words, working for the reward, that goes against every fiber of what we think being a Christian is all about. But, he says, the New Testament consistently invites Christians to contemplate the inheritance that awaits them. In fact, I would say Jesus does that more than anybody else. He is constantly bringing up, he'll reward you. He'll reward you. There's a reward. He doesn't have any problem using that to what to me seems like an additional motivation. Right? And I think part of understanding that motivation is, is the way, I like the way he put it. The, the reward, he says, but the New Testament consistently invites Christians to contemplate the inheritance, right? So Jesus' offers of rewards, and really James's in this context, is saying it, it's, it's a way of getting your eyes off of right now rewards onto further off rewards, right? I mean... We, and, and I think this is hugely valid because we live in a society right now that, let's be very clear, to work for something that you don't get instant gratification for is almost unthinkable, <laughs> right? 
to, to, to work for something that you can't get rewarded for in five seconds. Um, not to be too mean to the youth in the room, but as a teacher, not any of you. You guys are awesome. You guys are just wonderful. But as a, a teacher, th- there are very few kids, I, in my humble opinion, that can, can really think beyond what, what, how does this benefit me right now? Right? How does this benefit me right now? <laughs> you know what one of my biggest battles is? I, I offer all kinds of delayed benefit that aren't even like long, way, way later. I'll give you one example. One of my favorite ones to do is I will say, um, if you keep your, so I'll have like in a chapter, I'll have five times where I do like instruction and I give notes and they can write stuff down that I'm doing. That's not a homework assignment. There is no, you're not getting a grade for this right now, but I will go, if for every section of notes that you have, if you keep these and you have them on the day of the test, if you turn them in on the day of the test, I will give you a bonus point for each one. So that's five sections, that's five points could be added onto your test by just keeping your notes and not throwing them away. Now, my hope is obviously that they will take the notes and write them down and they might actually do some learning in the middle of that accidentally. But I'm like, here's the, you would be amazed at how many kids will hear that and go, okay, and they'll, they'll jot down the notes. Some of them don't make it all the way through. They'll make it halfway through and they'll be like, oh, it's not worth it. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not even making that up. And the, the, the other half that keep it, I, you would believe that of the half that do keep the notes, they will come up to me afterwards and say, can you keep these for me? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to keep these for you. Uh, because I want to see if you can keep them. That's the whole point. And they're like, ah, oh, Mr. Hollis. And then you'd be amazed at how many get to the day of the test. And I will go, now, if you got your notes, don't forget you can turn those in. And I'll have at least three or four kids go, oh, yeah. And then they'll try to go copy all those notes so they can get the points for them. I'm like, no, it's too late. You don't, if you don't have them right now, I'm not giving them to you. And they, they can't quite think if I just... Write this down while he's doing it. It's very simple, and just don't lose it. There's a reward for that. And I, I know. You, uh, you'd be amazed at how many kids. I will, I will, after class is over, I will go over to my, like my little desk podium thing, and I'll have some of their notes with their name on it stuck underneath my stuff on my desk so that I would keep it for them. And I'm like, oh, I'll keep that right in my filing cabinet right down here. (laughs) My file cabinet. And then they'll ask for them later and they'll go, Mr. Holmes, did you keep those notes for me? It's like, what? Notes? Notes? What note? What do you mean? You didn't keep your notes? And they're like, no, I put them on your... Well, why would you do that? I don't understand. And I'll, I'll just play like I'm real. Like I can't figure out what they're talking about. Like, what do you mean? Like you... Put them on my de- you to keep, but you. I thought you were keeping the note. No, Mister. I wanted you to keep me keep them for you. Don't understand. Oh, that's real funny. <laughs> anyway, I totally lost track of what I was talking about. Rewards. Rewards. But that's my that's my one example. There, there's a thousand that I could give. Um. 
uh, it, and that, that's just short term. That's still fairly short term, isn't it? I'll give you a, a little bit longer term. I mentioned geometry. Um, one of the things that I, I miss that geometry doesn't have anymore is uh, proofs. Now, it's very difficult to convince somebody why proofs are valuable. Um, there's two easy ways that I can talk about why proofs are valuable. Easy way number one, writing code. <laughs> it's the same thing. Number two, there is huge benefit to doing things that you don't understand why you need to do them, but just doing them to the best of your ability. Your whole life, that is a skill you will need. Do, doing things that you don't understand why I should do them, I can't see it, but I, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. When I was in Christian school, then I actually just brought that out. I said, because they say, why should I do this? And I say, well, this is a perfect opportunity to see if you really love Jesus or not. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, the Bible says whatever you do, do it heartily as if for the Lord and not for people. So if you can do something that you don't really like to do and don't want to do, and you can do it as if you were doing it for Jesus himself, that's evidence that you really do love Jesus, and you're not just saying it. And then they go, oh, could you give me the notes again? <laughs> um, and it's, you know, I don't get to do those kind of motivations in, in public school unless they ask. Why do you really think I should do this? Well, I can tell you why I really think I should do it, but I could get fired. Well, tell us anyway. What is it? I really want to know now. Well, you go to church, right? Oh, twice with my grandma. Well, I'll tell you what. Did you know the Bible says this? And they're like, oh, really? I still don't want to do it. <laughs> now, back to reward, right? We are short-term gratification sort of people. We can mock the kids all we want, but we're the same way. Right? And Jesus, and in this case, James, is saying there's great reward for those who follow him and remain steadfast under trial. Great reward. And so when you're in the middle of trial, I take verse 12 to mean, when you're in the middle of the trial, I don't think it's wrong at all. In fact, I think there's something really good and right about thinking to yourself, if I can stick with this, there's a reward. I may not get it here. I may not get it now. But there's reward that God offers. He promises, and he's a keeper of promises. And there's reward, this crown of life, right, for those who love him. Any other thoughts? I had to throw that one in there. Thoughts on that or anything else? Because I want to get into the second part. What do we learn about people? And at some point, you know, depending on how it's talked about or, or whatever they may say, yeah, that's worth it or that's not worth it. And I think there's a lot of um, times when I'm going through in the middle of a trial where I, where I read verse 12 and I'm like, I don't want the crown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, but, but the way it's phrased is almost like 
don't you understand how worth it this really is? Mm, yeah. Because that word blessed, it's like you're going to be overjoyed. You're going. This is so worth it. Mm. And I'm, I'm not sure what the crown of life is. Yeah. What we're going to do with it or why it's important. Mm-hmm. I hope I get a couple <laughs> to be able to experience that, but it's um, it's important because that's the that's the value that's the worth it for when he comes later on and says mm. you know this is why you're going to reject your own <coughs> desires you're going to reject the temptations of your own lusts is because you're you're reaching for this crown mm-hmm. also to please and glorify god right I mean, that's that's your reward that's your you know your character mm-hmm. I, uh, the pastor we had down in South Carolina, he used to always put it this way when he, he preached through Hebrews and the catchphrase for the whole book ended up being, um, keep at it, he's worth it. And I, I've never forgotten that. That's, that crown of life is so closely connected with all that he is. You know, um, Keep at it, he's worth it. I'll never forget that. Um, yeah. So this part talks about temptation. Mm. What if there is what if there is seemingly no temptation in the equation? What you know, I mean we all know Christians, some people who we consider mm-hmm. good people and horrible, unspeakable things happen to them. Mm. Are those trials or those mm. not trials and is all the same stuff that we apply to this working towards that? Yeah. Like, I mean sometimes there's situations where the horrible thing that happens to a person is someone who isn't even what you would say Yeah. And it's like, why, you, you begin to ask yourself, like, why would God do this? Mm-hmm. How is this building my character? Mm-hmm. What could he possibly, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. temptation, or is, you know, I mean, are they the same thing? Do they approach them the same way? I, is there something else going on? I think that uh, that is probably one of the most challenging realities of this sin broken world to tackle um especially i think and i actually am going to ask my two biblical counselors in the room to 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 throw in on this one because um i find that that is one of the most challenging things not just to try to understand but then to try to help someone work through like that is such a challenge and so I'm interested to hear what my two biblical counselors might might throw in on that, um, their thoughts on that that particular thing before I even answer. Do you guys have any thoughts jumping out at you before I? You guys were hoping I would, I would give you more time. <laughs> it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, those are that's part two, but it's a different kind of part. Yeah, yeah. many of them have been sinned against. That's what's led to the right. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the most direct emulation of like bearing the cross? 
Tragedies. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. But one of the things I want to throw in there, and I don't want to get ahead of myself because some of this is going to, I want to talk about a little bit of this, a little tiny bit of this in uh, church this morning, in the service. Um, and I'm going to start this morning by saying, I don't want anybody to ever think, because Jesus is going to address something tragic, and, and he's going to say, he's going to say something about it. And... I don't want anybody to hear that and think that Jesus is trying to say this is the one and only thing that's happening in that event. Um, I think that one of the things you can gather from Scripture and from the stories of Scripture and all the different kinds of things that happen, there's many things that are, for lack of a better term, multifaceted in their impact and the the aspects of what's happening through them and because of them and why they happen and all those sorts of things. There's... It's, it's the Bible doesn't ever, I don't think, seek to narrow it down to some simplistic or, like you said, trite answer. So the example is um, Luke 13, verses 1, 2, 3. Um, there's some people that come to Jesus and say, what about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with the sacrifice? And so we don't know exactly what it was that happened, but there were some Galileans who were down in Jerusalem, and whatever happened, Pilate must have had these people killed in such a way that their blood was like it happened, must, must have happened in the temple, potentially. Like, we don't know. We don't know the details. But the result was these Galileans, their, their blood was, was mixed in with the sacrifice that was happening. And uh, such an atrocious, atrocious thing. And so he mentions that one, that, so that's a crime at the hands of some, a sinful person. And then he throws another one in there. He says, or what about the 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell? And, and his response to that isn't what I would expect. But I want to start off this morning, and I'll say it right now again. I don't think that what Jesus is saying is that the only, that's the only thing, because I'll just tell you, I'll give you a spoiler. Um, he says, um, were they any worse sinners this is what Jesus says. Were they any worse sinners than anybody else, or basically the people he's talking to? Were they worse sinners than anybody present? And the answer is no. And then he says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And then he says the same thing about the 18 who died in the ta this tower falling. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So there's at least one thing that we can walk away from, tragic things. I think there's a probably multitude of things you can learn, and the scriptures talk about those things. Like, for example, uh, John chapter 9, uh, there's a man who was born blind, spent his whole life blind. And Jesus, or the disciples say, who sinned? This man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. <laughs> but this happened, and I, I think I've always thought this would be a hard thing for that blind man. This happened so that God would be glorified. That, that, so he spent a lifetime of blindness so that Jesus would be glorified in that moment. Whew. Right? Uh, so there, there we get another piece of the puzzle. Sometimes things like that happen for the, the purpose of glorifying Christ. And maybe both. Maybe there's a hundred things. Yeah. 
that has an angry, bitter heart that asks that same question. And then there could be a weeping person hmm. who says the exact same words, but their frame of mind is different. So just understanding where the person's at before you even try to enter into that conversation is huge. There can be some that are just simply asking it out of philosophical wrangling. Right, just understanding where the person's at before you try to enter it. Second thing I would say is a very helpful book I found is called When God Weeps by Johnny Erickson Tata, mm. uh, who knows suffering tremendously. Um, she wrestles with this big question that theologians have called the problems of evil and how do we encourage people suffering through suffering. And the third, I was going to say, Matt, I feel like we ought to just stay the same passage. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, because there's a whole other part of this that we need to talk about is there's the anatomy of sin is given to us, right? The biology of sin. <laughs> it's conceived. If you, this, if you haven't seen it in your life, you're obtuse. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's... So, yeah, I think definitely... Um, yeah, we don't we don't want to move on because there's there's a lot more. Maybe I should have Paul teach next week. <laughs> oh, this is yeah, this is. Do you guys, are you guys finding this beneficial? Just the conversation element of it. Okay, um, I hope that in the end. Yeah. When he went to all those colleges, mm-hmm. by far the, the number one question he got was why is there suffering? Yeah. And that was the type of suffering they were yeah. talking about. Not it's that that's actually a point, and I've gotten the I'm about to suffer if I don't end this because my dad was giving me the look. But um, uh, I I will say that uh, I I sometimes underestimate that question, but uh, just to end with this, I, I've noticed that most debates that where you've got someone who's an atheist debating with a Christian, that's one of the key things that comes up. The the problem of I think there's so many books that have been written on the problem of pain. I think C. S. Lewis has one called the problem of pain. I mean it, it's something we gotta wrestle with and I try to seek to understand what how does how is there a good God in this world? Right? If you have your eyes open. Unjust suffering. Yeah, Hebrews 12. Like you just take them, I think we put the pressure on us to try to make sense of what somebody's going through. When our main job is to get them to Jesus. Um, that's, it's a conduit. I'm just, you know, I don't know. So. I'm stepping down before I suffer at the hands of an angry father. Yes. So. <laughs> you guys are dismissed. <laughs>